I'm Serena. Welcome to Creative Baggage, a podcast that gets into the nitty-gritty of pursuing an artistic career. In this episode, we talk to our former professor, Dr. Cynthia Folio, about the life events that shaped her musical career. From growing up in a military family to having a special needs daughter, Dr. Folio's unique circumstances have greatly influenced her music making and compositions. We are honored to have Dr. Folio as our teacher and guest. Hi, I'm Cynthia Folio. I am chair of the music studies department at Temple University. I've been teaching theory, composition, and flute there since 1990. Before that, I spent 10 years teaching at TCU. I taught flute and theory, and also played second flute and piccolo in the Fort Worth Symphony. Um, My dad was in the Army. Mm. And um, we moved uh, 17 times in my first 15 years of life. Wow. So I never made friends. Mm. Why bother? You're gonna go three months, you're gonna be somewhere else. And I had to change schools constantly. So I was extremely shy. Mm. Uh, and so I would practice my flute five hours a day. That was my, wow. that was it, that, that was my friend. I feel like a lot of people have a similar experience where like isolation brings them closer to music. Cause I think in middle school, I mean, I didn't have the same kind of experience moving a lot, but I moved once in, between sixth and seventh grade. And actually, when I moved to my new school, even though the town was only 15 minutes away, that is when my flute playing really kicked off because I was in a new band program and I really liked the teacher. And I also just like was in a strange new place with all these people that I didn't know very well. And so I really did take to flute playing and I spent the next like couple of years being the closest to my instrument. I had a very similar experience. I had like a lot of trouble in school making close friends and I found band and you know the teachers were very friendly and that was exciting um, but the biggest thing was like I felt like I had something that was just me mm. um, and other people I could whatever I did I could bring it to other people and we had that thing in common mm. and that was how I found my first friend group because it was like I like music, you like music, and I could finally, like, socialize. Yeah. And then as I got older, like, I noticed that, especially when I, like, started going to summer festivals or doing outside-of-school activities through music, because you have this, like, inner thing in common, you're able to form such deep connections with people that I just didn't have, even though I was seeing a lot of the people at school every single day. It wasn't the same as those people that I met at summer camp for like a couple of weeks and then we Mm -hmm. kept in touch for years after. Yeah, and of course, when you make music together, it's a a social activity. Mm -hmm. And I I still find, um, you know, I've had a lot of anxiety this summer because of um, my job. Yeah. But when I practice my flute, and I've been practicing the piano too, Oh. And I'm practicing my karate, <laughs> and every every single one of them requires so much concentration, mm-hmm. you know, that you 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 can't think about all the problems that you have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have to you have to focus on what you're doing. And mm-hmm. I've memorized a lot of music this summer. Um, it, it just helped me focus. 
um, something besides my own, you know, angst. <laughs> yeah. It's so comforting in that. Yeah, I had a lot of trouble um, in the beginning, and I remember the first, like, I had put my flute away for, like, the first three weeks right after school closed, and then I finally went back to it, and I'm like, oh, my God, that was the first hour of my life that I hadn't thought about the coronavirus in, like, <laughs> yeah, three weeks. Exactly, right. And it helped a lot, um, and I, I think we're quick to forget that, too, because, like, at least for me, like, as much as joy is associated with the flute, there's plenty of stress yeah. <laughs> also associated with music. So I have to like, I've had to work really hard to separate those and try not to do anything musical that would make me feel anxious. Mm-hmm. Um, because yeah. then it just like, I've had a couple times where it just made it worse. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, you know, I, I don't have the pressure right now of having to take lessons and do juries and, I don't even have any performances lined up. I mean, you know, mm, yeah. and so I, I just play for fun mm. and I, I definitely don't play Anderson Etudes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I play stuff that I like. Yeah. That's been a big and, theme. And of I play jazz podcast. and I, you know, um, I, I, I do it just for the joy of it right now. When you were first getting into genres like outside of classical music and even like improving and composing in your head did you have an awareness of what you were doing like did you know that you were breaking boundaries or were you just doing what felt right to you i was i was doing what felt right wow and uh, actually what kicked the whole thing off is i i spent um my my father was stationed in panama for three years mm-hmm. and i was exposed to a lot of great latin uh, latin music you know, just a lot of jazz. Um, I um, I studied with the first chair of the Panama Symphony, and um, and I had solfege. I signed up for the Panama Conservatory. It cost five dollars a year. Oh my god! <laughs> because uh, you know, music is socialized in, in Panama, oh. so poor people, anybody, can study music. Oh. Uh, anyway. If you took flute lessons, you also had to take solfege, and I just loved it. Mm-hmm. I loved it. And then my flute teacher's son played jazz flute at the Panama Hilton, huh. and my parents went dancing every Saturday, and they would take me. Oh, that's so cute. <laughs> I would watch them dance, but I will say I was listening to this jazz flute player mm-hmm. and thinking, wow, maybe I could do that, you know? Hmm. So. Panama was a huge inspiration for me. Yeah, I also had great teachers there. Um, at, at that time, there was the Panama Canal Zone that was basically this American strip along the Panama Canal. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's gone now, you know, because the Americans gave it back to Panama. Uh, but I, I had um, a lot of, uh, there were a lot of great teachers who settled there because they just liked it. Mm. And I had this great flute teacher, and I had all this inspiration. And that's where I really started getting into jazz. Have you been back since? Oh, I want to go back so bad. As it turns out, my junior high school there, mm-hmm. the junior high school, is now the, the new Panama Conservatory. Whoa! Isn't it funny? That's so... Yeah, it's on my bucket list. Yeah. <laughs> but but yes, yeah, I'm sure it's very, very different than it was before. Yeah, but it must be amazing to go back and see, like, the origin of so many of your inspirations and influences. Yeah, and, you know, (laughs) (laughs) 
and, and that's that's some of the problem too of being an army brat is that I can't remember many of the places that I grew up in. Oh wow. Because you know the scenery is constantly changing. Yeah. So if you grow up in one place, you see the same people, you see, see the same buildings, you see the same stuff. Mm-hmm. But when you constantly move, you can, it, you, it's hard to remember where you were before. Yeah. Because you were only there for maybe like five months. I see. Yeah, so uh, there's a great book. Uh, it's called Brats. Mm-hmm. And, and I read it, and um, it talks about all of the, the symptoms, you might say, of growing up mm. in the military. One of them is you can't make friends. Mm. Uh, another is you can't remember anything <laughs> from your past. Y- you know, you just have these like faint illusions of where you were before. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, another is that you, you know, you tend to be very introspective. Mm. And you also, another one is you want to move all the time. Do you feel that? Oh, you know, I feel it all the time. But <laughs> here, I've been at Temple since 1990. Uh-huh. So. <laughs> wow. Where am I going to go, right? <laughs> and now I have a daughter who is completely, uh, all of her supports are right here mm-hmm. where I live. I was actually asked to apply for a deanship this summer in, in another state. Okay. And I said, no, I can't, I can't move because my daughter, all my daughter's services are right here. Yeah. You have done such an incredible job, like catering to her needs and you've mm-hmm. come up with such creative ways to like give her a fulfilling life and I don't know it would be great if you could talk about the processes of like obviously she's in a very unique situation how did you figure out all the little things that would make her happy and like all of her talents well that's a big question um you know she's 28 years old mm-hmm. and she was diagnosed when she was one and a half mm-hmm. this terrible disease it's called tuberous sclerosis complex mm-hmm. uh and from the very beginning I I've been a I've applied for services for her uh, in every every step of the way. And, of course, when she graduated from high school, I found a wonderful vocation, vocational program for her mm-hmm. where she does artwork. Wow. And it, it turns out that that is, like, that's her calling. Oh. I showed, showed you the diamond dots. Yeah. But she also does drawings on her right. paint. Like, you wouldn't believe. She uh-huh. does needlepoint. Um, she sells her work. She actually had to pay taxes last year. <laughs> <laughs> It's because she made too much money uh, <laughs> selling her artwork. Uh-huh. And, of course, half of that money was me buying her stuff. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> In fact, if you go to my website, uh-huh. uh, you know, com, the whole background of my website is one of her drawings. Wow. Link in the description. And, we'll get it. <laughs> yeah, and it was, uh, and, and this particular drawing, this particular painting was featured on Epilepsy Magazine, mm. a, a peer-reviewed journal wow. called Epilepsy and Behavior. Mm-hmm. So, like, she's a famous artist, yeah. sort of. And then I wrote, uh, you know, I wrote a composition about her secret. Um, it's, it's called When the Spirit Catches You. Yeah, we heard it in um, your Theory 4 class. I remember right, we like, analyzed right. it. Yeah, and, and it was performed it. last November at, at another epilepsy conference. Wow. Right. 
where they paid for the Wallace Ensemble to go down to Baltimore and perform it live. Yeah. So, and then the voiceovers are by Lydia, but she was 12 years old. I mean, it must be so hard to communicate. Like, how do you show people who don't experience that what it feels like? And for you to, like, channel that into something that allows other people to understand is really amazing. Well, uh, Lydia would could never ever tell me what it felt like oh. to have a seizure. Right. And so by reading these little phrases from a book mm. uh, that I discovered at an epilepsy camp, um, by reading these little phrases, she, I think she feels like oh, maybe I do know what it feels like to have a seizure. Mm. Uh, it, it was a way that she could express herself. Yeah. So it no, it's very it was very very powerful and. More and more, I'm, I'm writing music that um, has social meaning. Mm-hmm. I wrote a piece about climate change. What is the main value to you of writing music that has social commentary or meaning behind it? Because Bailey and I took a music and environmental activism class this past year, and we spent a mm. lot of time like discussing and debating how much music contributes to movements and activism in general. So... Like, as a composer, what do you find to be the most valuable or meaningful thing about doing something like that? It's the reaction that I get from the audience. Mm. You know, they, um, you know, I can write a sonata, you know, a, a totally unprogrammatic piece, and I've done a lot of that. But when I, when my seizure piece is performed, my climate change piece is mm-hmm. performed, it was even performed in Costa Rica, um, just all over the place. Um, people react to it uh, in a way that they don't react to, you know, just a regular sonata. Mm. Or the first performance of my seizure piece, people came up to me. They say, what you did, your music and, and the visuals and the voiceovers, etc., really evoked what what I think it feels like to have a seizure. Mm. Of course, I don't know what it feels like because I've never had one, but I've watched, I've watched my daughter have thousands. Yeah. I, I, I probably can't even count. You must have spent so many years, like, trying to understand. Uh, when she was young, I went with her to epilepsy camps mm-hmm. uh, because the, the parent had to come because they were too young to be left alone. So I would spend like two weeks at an epilepsy camp. Wow. And I would not only watch my daughter have seizures, I'd watch other children mm. around their age have seizures. Yeah. We talked a lot about in like our previous podcast how music and arts like can generate empathy for something that you don't understand or you've never had to experience. And like a lot of us in this world are really fortunate to not have to experience having a seizure ourselves or even seeing someone that we love have one and to have music out there that can convey a feeling it, it allows us to be able to understand without having to feel the pain ourselves and that's mm-hmm. a really amazing thing it gives people just like a more open mind and more compassion exactly yeah what what i what i'm really trying to do is raise awareness yeah, um, I've, I've been an advocate for epilepsy. And in fact, I just had an article published in a book mm-hmm. uh, by the same author that these phrases came from uh, that, that Lydia spoke. He, um, 
he, he basically got in touch with a whole bunch of people who are advocates for people with epilepsy. And um, my chapter talks about us. And another, here's another thing that's really inspired my daughter, uh, besides art, is karate. We got involved together because this particular um, studio had a special needs class. But anyway, we got involved with it. It's been a family thing. Uh -huh. We practice. We go, we go, in fact, we have classes every Monday and Wednesday night. Um, and the teacher is very understanding of the fact that she, you know, she can't really, she can't really do things quite as well as, you know, you might expect. Mm -hmm. um, and, and they just, they help her along and, and she does her best. Mm. And actually she has a better memory than I do. Wow. She remembers the forms better than I do. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because as you get older, you, you sort of you sort of lose some of that. But um, yeah, we're getting back to it. I'm learning a new bong form, new staff mm -hmm. form. That's my specialty. What would be the creative element that you find in doing something like karate? Oh, um, it is creative. Uh, even though you're following forms, you know, you have to learn forms and you have to have particular stances and particular movements. And uh, it, we're talking about the staff. The staff is this big, long um, thing, <laughs> you know, big, long stick. And you have to spin it around in really fancy ways. Mm -hmm. um, it's almost like memorizing a piece of music. Mm. You're memorizing a form. And there are very particular movements. Uh, but you can add your own creative elements too. Mm. You know, you can make your stances longer. You can um, you can do extra spins uh, with with the staff. Um, so you can you can actually be creative within it. Wow. Um, but it, it is like memorizing composition. If you're memorizing form, and uh, some of the forms have as many as like seventy moves. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that's interesting. It reminds me a lot of like dance. Oh, yeah, exactly. Your choreography. It's choreography. Yeah. I used to do um, Irish step dancing My up until I was like 13. <laughs> yeah, but I, uh, when I memorize music on flute now, uh -huh. I have to do it with movement. Mm -hmm. So like, I, I, the, the best way, because I was having so much trouble memorizing music, and then what I did was I would stand in the practice room and I would, I would turn every time I did a new phrase. And so if you walk past, it looked ridiculous because I was like, you know, slowly turning around in a circle. But, you know, by the time it was in my head, I wouldn't have to physically move. But I, I noticed that I need that crutch because I learned how to memorize dance mm -hmm. way earlier before I was even playing the flute. And right. so my brain has to go down that pathway first. Yeah. Wow. At this point, as a black belt, I have uh, about 20 forms that I have to remember. Wow. And I have 61 steps. Those are a nightmare. Um, Basically, they're self-defense techniques, and when you go for your next, I'm going to be going for second degree probably in a year. Wow. They have they'll they'll say, okay, do number twenty-three, <laughs> and you have to remember what number twenty-three is. <laughs> That's crazy. It is crazy, and it's it's a series of moves that are basically self-defense techniques. But um, the, the cool thing about them is that if if I ever were attacked, uh, I would instantly. It becomes part of your, you know, mm -hmm. it becomes physically part of you. If somebody were to come at me with a dagger, for mm -hmm. instance, I know exactly what to do. Yeah. It's like 
creativity in choosing which one to use as well, right? Exactly. Because exactly. you have to react the right way to what anybody else is doing. Right. So if they came at me, you know, like at the head, I would uh, basically with karate, you step aside and you block <laughs> and then you break your arm. Oh my goodness. By uh, pushing on the elbow in the way that the elbow doesn't go. Oh my gosh, anyone impressor, stay out of Dr. Folio's right. way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's like a combination of creativity and like endless training because yeah, you have to be creative, but you don't have time. So like your brain has to have it like wired in there, right? To be able to right. react and already yeah, you, know what you to do. You can't stand there for se- for like 10 seconds and say, well, <laughs> what, what should I do? <laughs> you know? Right, and I mean, improv is the same way. It's like, even though improv is creative through your mind, you still have to play chords and notes and mm-hmm. read changes. And, you know, it's, yeah. not, it's not all, like, fabricated from your mind. You have to remember the notes. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. it's, it's similar. Wow. Yeah. I never connected the two, but it makes sense why you would be so good at both. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Hi, guys. We're on Instagram and Twitter. You can follow us at creative.baggage on Instagram and at baggagecreative on Twitter. You can also find links to these platforms in the description of our podcast.